Welcome to the Quality Meet Scotland podcast. Industry updates and best practice to promote, support, develop and protect the Scottish red meat sector. Hello and thanks very much for choosing this podcast. I'm Mark Stephen. As we record this, COP26 in Glasgow is drawing to a close. Bill, this is the last great chance for humanity to halt and hopefully reverse the global climate crisis. It will probably, yet again, fall far short of what needs to be done. Now, youth and public empowerment were two of the themes of this conference, and yet it was pretty obvious that the public, young and old, were outside the fence, while the politicians and policymakers were very much inside. So how did young people particularly make their voices heard? John McCulloch is 21. He's a stockman at Barber & Co, based in Crockettford near Dumfries. He's chairman of Stewartry Young Farmers and chairman of the West Region's Agriculture and Rural Affairs Committee. John, thanks very much for agreeing to do this. Thanks for having me. Oh, no bother at all. How do you think, just out of curiosity, how do you think that COP26 has gone? Looking from the outside in and what we've seen so far in the press about the, the agreements that have been made so far, they go in the right direction, but I don't think they're hard enough. Um, you know, they're talking about phasing out fossil fuels and all the countries that have agreed to that, but they haven't put a firm deadline to it. So it's okay saying that you're going to phase them out, but then, when, you know, by when or when are you going to do that? You know, there has to be a clear set timeline of events that, you know, countries have to stick to. Um, and I think that, you know, you're, they're expecting industries such as agriculture all over the world to make changes and do it by, you know, 2030 or 2045. But then, you know, when, when it comes to making big decisions about, things we know are a significant contributor, such as fossil fuel extraction and, and then the fossil fuel use, I think that it needs to be much, much tougher. Have you been able to exert any influence at COP26? And if so, how? We've certainly, um, by uh, the Scottish Association of Young Farmers Clubs, have uh, written a letter to uh, Marie Goujon, MSP, uh, who's the Cabinet Secretary for Rural Affairs and Islands. And, and we wrote to her to, to ask if she would ensure that any policy which was created after COP26 in terms of agriculture was fair for the industry. We think that the industry has already taken massive strides to decrease its carbon footprint and, and ensure that it's going in the right direction. So I didn't, we don't think that policy which is created after COP should punish us for something that we're trying to trying to work together to, to, to do to try and, you know, obviously reverse climate change. Is there any other legacy that's come out of COP26? From a Scottish young farmer's perspective, we have visited a few of our members across Scotland to see what they are already doing on farm to be more climate friendly. So we've visited um, one of our members in Aberdeenshire. We've also visited one in Fife and one in Dumfries and Galway as well. And I think the video comes out today on our social media channels. And I think that it's just us trying to show that young farmers have already taken huge steps to be more climate friendly on farm and to ensure that we are moving with the times because I think that's something that is maybe an issue in this industry when when people hear that you know there's new policy coming or there's change I think there's a huge fear of change in this industry at, at times from certain people and I think that you know it's not something to be scared of if it's something that it's something that needs to be done then we need to crack on and do it. Okay make that stand up then on a day-to-day -day basis what action are Scotland's young farmers actually taking? So there's a lot, a lot of our um, members who obviously run their own farms, whether that be livestock or machinery. And, you know, we've got a lot of members who are looking towards different, from the machinery angle and from the crop angle, we've got a lot of members who are looking to do 
things like minimum tillage and, uh, you know, try and regenerate soil health um, and ensure that they're locking up as much carbon as possible. And we've also in the livestock side got members who are, um, you know, ensuring that they're, they're looking to feed efficiency and ensuring they're using native breeds that they can put on hills, um, you know, to utilise grass, you know, and they're looking to the way they run their systems. I think every day everyone is thinking about ways that they can change their system to suit and to obviously work towards making the situation better. Taking a broader context, though, I mean, what kind of thing would young farmers like to see changed? There's a huge wide ranging list of things that, that we would like to see. Mainly, I think, you know, as we've written in our, in our letter to Marie Goujon, I think that we would, we would love to see more, more funding into research because we're always told to, to look at the facts and figures and work from them. And I think there's a huge amount of those facts and figures at the moment that aren't proven. They're not, they're not 100 percent. They're not, you know, they can't tell us that that is definitively, you know, that figure is definitively correct. And I think that if, if there's more money put into research and, and funding to ensure that we have the correct figures to use and we can we can run our farms more efficiently because we have the, the correct information. And also a, a massive thing that we're concerned about is the media as well. So, you know, if we have the correct facts and figures to work from, and that means also that the media and the government have the correct figures to work from too, and I think it would benefit everybody. How about things like, you know, obviously just as a consumer, you know, I walk into a supermarket, I can pick up a product that was literally produced on the other side of the world, 13,000 miles away, and yet somehow it seems to be either equal price or slightly cheaper than what's been grown here in Scotland. Does that make sense? Definitely not, in, in, in my view anyway. I think it's scandalous the fact that supermarkets can import food from across the world, put it on the shelves in this country and then sell it cheaper than the product from down the road. And, you know, we all talk about buy local and I think, you know, supermarkets preach about buying local and then they have stuff on their shelves from, you know, New Zealand lamb or avocados. And I think it, I think it's, like I say, I think it's absolutely scandalous. And I think that there should be some kind of policy put in place from here onwards. And I think there's, you know, to try and stop that, And, you know, I think with Brexit and obviously negotiating trade deals, I think there's a huge scope for changing these sorts of things. And I think that the government should certainly be looking towards that in the future. How would you do that, though? I mean, some sort of carbon tax on high food miles or almost like a traffic light system? Definitely. You know, the furthest away foods, I think, should definitely be, you know, not punished because obviously that country is in the same position as our country. They want to sell their goods, you know. We're not we're not having an issue about that. But what I think is, you know, we're talking about climate change and carbon and uh, all the things that people are doing that that would help would help the climate. And, you know, you're flying food in from thousands of miles across the world. I think that some kind of carbon tax or some kind of tax on on the amount of distance that a a food product has to travel. I think that sort of system certainly has to be looked at in the future. And how about you know, when, you, when young farmers are talking amongst themselves, you know, if you're looking at farms as an entity, what's your preference? Would it be to have farms the same size, bigger farms, smaller farms, more people in farming? How does the conversation go? There's, there's a lot of young farmers at the moment who, you know, obviously come from family farms. Their parents or their grandparents are getting older and they want to, they want to get into the family farm, which is great. They have that opportunity. There's a lot of young farmers who also, you know, want to get into farming but don't have that opportunity. And one of our main concerns at the moment is that a lot of land, 
a lot of good quality land in Scotland is being bought up to plant trees because it's widely seen that trees hold a lot of carbon and, and sequester a lot of carbon. Um, you know, and a lot of that ground is then going for that purpose. And then young people who want a start in the industry can't get a start because they're kind of been locked out by the fact that a lot of land has been bought up for trees. And also because it's been bought at such a high price, the land prices have went up as well. So therefore, it's a bit out of their budget to buy a farm or even, you know, rent a farm, which I think it's a real shame, you know, with a lot of enthusiastic young people in the industry that want to get a start and want to want to make a difference and they just can't because they just don't have that opportunity. And I think that's something that has to be looked at in the future. Yeah, I just wondered if you could actually make the argument with a straight face saying, look, I, I can run this farm in a way that's beneficial to climate change and carbon sequestration, etc. And I can equal the performance of, say, a mature broadleaf woodland. Can you make that argument? I can from the point that you can't feed people wood. You know, you need you need land to produce food. You know, and I think that tree, trees don't feed people. You know, it might they might sequester a lot of carbon, and they might they might um, you know they might look a lot better from that point of view. But I think when it comes down to the ever growing population and the amount of people that are going to be in this world in the future, and they all need food to eat, I think that planting trees on lesser quality land or more marginal land would be a far better use than planting them on good quality land where we could produce quality food. We're still getting the message on a fairly frequent basis, and certainly throughout COP26, I've heard it more than once, that we need to eat less meat. Does that concern you? It concerns me hugely, yes. And from being at COP26 on Tuesday, I think there was a there was that kind of theme running throughout the whole thing. You know, we were at a we were at a seminar in the morning where we heard from various researchers and there was just this constant back and forth between researchers who were researching obviously the carbon side and they're saying, uh, you know, we need to eat less meat because it's bad for the environment and, you know, it creates more carbon and methane and, uh, you know, and also they were bringing in the, the argument about meat being carcinogenic as well, which, um, you know, when you hear all these things added together, it's almost as if it's a scaremongering campaign, you know, and then you hear other people, you know, that that, that are talking about the land and obviously the, the argument for the reduced use of fertilisers and then how we need livestock to put organic matter back into the soil. And then, you know, in my mind, I just think you can't have it both ways. You know, you can't, you can't reduce livestock numbers and then do away with artificial fertilisers and expect there to be enough organic matter to keep the soil healthy to grow food. I think that that all of the things that are being talked about when it comes to climate change are important. But I think one of the main things is there needs to be a happy medium, a very finely struck balance where we have, you know, livestock that can produce food. And obviously we can use the waste from that to put back onto the land. And I think, you know, artificial fertilisers in the future from what I've seen so far are probably going to be phased out and I think if that is the case then livestock is going to be a pivotal part of food production. I find it fascinating that you can have two groups of people you can give them exactly the same bunch of facts and they interpret it in two different ways so you've got camp A camp B eventually the policymakers, the politicians have to decide on the route we're going to take how confident are you that they'll take us down the right road? Um not not very, and I don't mean that in a nasty way at all, but we are arguing for the presentation of hard facts. 
and then from the other camp, they are they are pulling at the emotional heartstrings, and I think eventually, I think eventually emotion will get the better of them. And I know that's that's sad in this day and age that someone who's making an emotional argument can get can get the better of people who are trying to make facts. But that is what we are arguing for in our in our letter that that facts are used to determine decision making in the future, so that it's fair for everyone. Um, and I think that pol- politicians need to need to realise that. When you actually walked in to the sort of you know the inner zone in COP twenty six, what what was your gut instinct? I mean, what was the vibe? What was the feeling there? So we were we were at two seminars in the city, and then we went to the green zone. So we were never actually inside the fence. We had a we had a huge we had a huge problem basically trying to to actually get in, and you know, I had approached a few different people at the Scottish government and SAYFC etc to see if we could basically get inside the actual conference and there was no basically there was no way of way of us getting in you know and we were young people who wanted to go in and, and see what the, the policy making was and try and obviously speak to, to people about our point of view and we, we just couldn't we just couldn't get in. Do you think that's a flaw in the system at COP? I think it was a little bit yes you know we, we were young people who were enthusiastic we were open-minded we wanted to go into COP and you know, speak to people, and um, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know what what the issue was there, but there's just there was no way of us getting in at all. You're really at the start of your career. How positive are you about the future? I'm hugely positive. I'm, I'm not a pessimist at all. Um, I think that agriculture's went through a huge amount of change in the last few years. You know, we've had Brexit, COVID. You know, I had foot and mouth in 2001. Um, I think that. You know, it, it it bounced back. It bounced back from foot and mouth fairly positively. Brexit came along. Don't get me wrong. It's it's been a struggle. People have worried a bit, and you know, I know that there's been huge issues in the industry with with uh, you know supply and and trying to sell their products. But I think that we are coming to terms with that now, and I think we're we're doing okay. And I think when it comes to COVID, you know, COVID's COVID's had a huge impact over the world. But I think as far as agriculture is concerned. Although it's had small changes on the day-to-day things like going to the market or going to shows, the actual running of the farms hasn't changed that much and people have just powered on and got on with it. And I think that shows the absolute resilience of the industry. And I don't think that the the climate change argument is going to be any different. I think that no matter what happens, what policy comes out of it, I think that we will make it work and I think the industry will pull through like it always does. And I'm hugely positive for the future. Just out of curiosity, how big a role do you see new technology playing in Scottish farming in the future? I think that we already see technology playing a huge role. I mean, um, obviously, from the from the cattle point of view, when it comes to things like, or from the livestock point of view, when you see things like EID tagging, you know, we're using a lot of technology now to keep to keep track of animals. Um, you know, I know that um, where I work at the moment, we are trialing um, fever tags in young calves so that we can pick up illness earlier so that we're using less less medicine and and you know i think i think that technologies are already creeping in as a huge part of day-to-day running on farms and and obviously we've got the gps on on the tractor side as well and i think that as time goes on that's just going to progress and i think that the technology is going to play a huge part in the future we are going to be talking specifically in our next QMS podcast about science and technology. But for now, John McCulloch, thank you very much for speaking to me. Thank you for having me.
No bother at all. And thank you for choosing this podcast. Uh, Until the next time, I'm Mark Stephen. I hope you found this interesting and useful. And thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Quality Meet Scotland podcast. For news and to listen back to previous episodes of the podcast, visit qmscotland.co.uk. For Scotch beef, Scotch lamb and specially selected pork recipe videos and inspiration, visit www.scotchkitchen.com or follow Scotch Kitchen on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.